The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Helen Scales, Dave Ansell and Chris Smith, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, mind reading has become a reality. How scientists can build up a picture of what you're looking at based only on your thoughts. And so what they did was, in excruciating detail, mapped out the visual area of the brain to see which bits of the retina mapped onto which bits of the brain, and then by decoding what bits of the brain became active, their computer program could work out, therefore, what the person must have been looking at and reproduce the pictures. How a simple technique could make the nastiest table wine palatable. A revolting young table wine could be transformed into a nicely refined, well-aged tipple simply by zapping it with electricity. And how technology used to keep spectacles safe from damage could be keeping bridges intact. So the idea is that if instead of using steel reinforcing, you make reinforcing out of this nitinol stuff. When the bridge shakes a lot, it'll always spring back to its original shape. And because a lot of its strength is due to its original shape, you can recover a lot quicker. That's all on the way, along with Chris, Dave and Helen selecting their favourite news story of 2008. This month, scientists have made an extraordinary breakthrough because they've discovered a way to see what a person is seeing just by reading their brain activity. Now, this is the work of Yoichi Miyawaki, who's a researcher at Kyoto's National Institute of Information and Communication in Japan. He and his colleagues have got a paper in the, the journal Neuron this month. What they did was to make use of the premise that the retina, which is the part of the eye that turns light into nerve signals that the brain can understand, projects or sends nerve signals to different bits of the brain. And so when the, when the retina receives a signal, so when it sees something, the bit of the brain that it's communicating with becomes more active. And you can see that slight increase in activity if you put people in a brain scanner. So what he and his colleagues did was to put two subjects, two male volunteers, in a brain scanner and they showed them small patterns to different parts of their retina and these patterns were uh, overlapping slightly from one pattern to the next and so what they did was, in excruciating detail, mapped out the visual area of the brain to see which bits of the retina mapped onto which bits of the brain and then they were able to show these people patterns, for instance a plus sign or a cross or even a square which was a white square on a dark background, for example. And then by decoding what bits of the brain became active, their computer program could work out, therefore, what the person must have been looking at and reproduce the pictures. And in the paper, they have these extraordinary images where you can compare the pictures that their computer generated based on the brain activity and the picture the person actually looked at, and they're almost the same. So this is the first time anyone's actually done it with physically showing an image recreated just in brain waves. Um, would this work with, if you're imagining an image, so if you had a very vivid dream, would that be likely to be triggering the similar sort of neurons or is this happening very, very early in the processing? No, this is exactly right, Dave, because the researchers go on and say you don't just have to look at visual information, you could look at any aspect of brain processing with this technique because you could look at how movements are generated, for example. You could look at how colour is generated. You could look at faces. Faces are decoded in an entirely different part of the brain in the superior temporal gyrus, which is on the side of the brain adjacent to where your ear is approximately. There's a whole area of the brain just devoted to working out what face you're looking at. So they're saying you could use exactly the same technique they've developed and apply it to all different kinds of processing modalities 
But obviously it's early days. This is just a proof of concept, but it shows that computing and scanner technology has come on so much now that you can actually pick apart activity down at the level of almost individual clusters of nerve cells, which is pretty extraordinary. Well, I'm going to take things down a peg or two from very intricate science to something that we will hopefully all be able to benefit from one day. And since the festive season is upon us, I'm sure that lots of us will be raising a few glasses of wine in celebration. I certainly will be. But uh, this week we have news of a novel way that scientists have found to give a boost to a cheap bottle of plonk. And a revolting young table wine could be transformed into a nicely refined, well-aged tipple simply by zapping it with electricity. Now, now, you might expect that it was the French, possibly, or maybe the Australians or the Chileans or one of the you know, well-known uh, wine-producing nations that might have come up with this new bit of wine trickery. But you'd be quite surprised to find out it was actually the Chinese. This was the brainchild of Xing Ang Zhen and colleagues from the South China University of Technology in Guangzhou in China. And they're quite a relative newcomer, I must say, to the world of fine winemaking. I don't know about you guys, but I've certainly never tried a Chinese wine. <laughs> I've had no, never. I've had Malagasy wine, and I really wouldn't recommend it necessarily. The white, white's OK, but definitely stay clear of the red. Anyway, Zeng and his teams were, began experimenting with Chinese Cabernet Sauvignon wine, and what they did essentially was pass it through a tube with two titanium electrodes hooked up to an electric field, and they found that the optimum time to expose the wine to this electric field was just three minutes, no more, no less. And they don't actually yet know why this is happening. We can't quite explain what is going on with these electric fields and why it's altering the wine's chemistry, but we do do know it does seem to work. They gave these wines to a team of wine experts and they didn't obviously think that they were absolutely amazing wines, but they were certainly better than they should have been. These were three-month-old wines which should really be undrinkable. Were the electrodes actually in the wine, Helen? Therefore, are they electrolyzing the wine, a bit like a battery almost, or were they just creating a field around the wine and therefore that's a bit different, isn't it? I think, I think what they did was, although I do apologise if I'm wrong on this, I think it was just passing the field through the wine. I think they had two titanium electrodes inside a it pipe. It was inside. Okay, um, And then they put electricity between the two uh, between the two electrodes through the wine. And that okay, great. Effect. Thanks, Dave. Sorry about that. So this, they did. So it could be something to do with electrolysis. But what is it, what's going on inside the, the, the wine, no matter what actually is causing it, is essentially changes in the chemistry. You've got um, various um, bitter organic acids in the wine, which is what really are making it taste fairly badly. They react with the ethanol to create things called esters, and they're fruity, nice-flavoured um, compounds that actually help the wine taste better. And that's the sort of thing that usually happens, but very slowly as the wine ages. And that's why wines only really should be drunk after six months. And of course, a really good wine keeps getting better and better for decades and decades. But Helen, people say, you know, if wine tastes bad, it probably tastes bad for a reason. So should we really be trying to spruce up dodgy wine to make it taste good? Shouldn't well, we just go and buy decent wine? I mean, wine I think you're quite right to some extent. I think wine connoisseurs are unlikely to say, hey, this is fantastic. This is, you know, a replacement for all that, the wine-making skill that we've, we've developed for thousands of years. Um, but I could see how maybe for certain cheaper wines, perhaps it would make them a bit nicer because there are people who, let's face it, don't want to spend more than a couple of quid on a bottle of wine. Um, but I must say, um, so well, they're, they're trying this out in China and we'll see whether or not the Chinese wines really will hit the market with this new electro wine treatment. Um, but I would say if you're feeling a bit impatient this Christmas for a tasty glass of wine, please don't try this at home. Just, just red wine was it or does it work on white wine too? I don't think they've tried white yet. May have to go out the garage later. Now, um, I mean, it's not because he drinks meths or anything, but because 
it doesn't make meth taste better, I presume. But uh, no, he means as in you're going to do some experiments, presumably, Dave. Well, I, I wouldn't say it. I'm sure it's... I, yeah, anyway, get yeah, back onto the subject. Now, slightly more seriously, the destruction produced by earthquakes can be devastating in itself. But often the knock-on effects of this destruction can be even worse. For example, if an earthquake damages a bridge beyond repair, there's not just problems with people around, on or around the bridge. It also means the emergency services can't get across the bridge to help put out fires on the other side and generally support pe- and support people on the other side. In the longer term, of course, a lack of bridge could slow down rebuilding after the disaster and entirely ruin the economy around either side of the bridge. Now, engineers at the University of Nevada are trying to reduce this problem by using modern materials. The cause of much of the problem is that the steel that's used to reinforce the concrete in the bridges, um, during a large earthquake, this is designed to bend to absorb some of the shaky vibration energy. This is quite effective at stopping the whole structure collapsing during the earthquake, but the problem is that this can actually cause a bridge to be damaged beyond repair and so you can't drive over it. Yeah, so, so it's actually all it's doing is stopping the bridge killing people when it falls, but it's not actually preserving the bridge at all. Yeah, it, it's sort of um, a bit like a crumple zone. It, it survives the, the earthquake without killing anyone, but you wouldn't want to use a car afterwards. So after what's the, the solution? Well, they've been using um, a kind of material called shape memory metal called nitinol. This is the sort of stuff you sometimes get in glasses frames, so you can like sit on your glasses, they're bent, and, but they'll sort of spring back to the original shape. So the idea is that if instead of using the steel reinforcing, you make reinforcing out of this nitinol stuff. Um, it's made out of nickel and titanium. Um, and so that when the bridge shakes a lot, um, it'll always spring back to its original shape. And because a lot of its strength is due with its original shape, it might not be as strong as it was to start with, and you might need to do a few kind of superficial repairs, but it's not going to fall down, and you might be able to drive over it carefully um, immediately after the, um, the disaster, and you can recover a lot quicker. Buildings as well? Um, they haven't looked into this. They actually, with this, they built a model bridge um, about sort of 200 feet long and they shook it really violently. So they've only looked at um, bridges so far, but I see no reason why you couldn't do it with buildings as well. Thank you, Dave. Now, also, what we thought would be quite fun to do this year was to ask everyone to take a look back over the previous 12 months to pick out some of the items that have been discovered this year, which we thought were the most funny, fun or intriguing. So I'm going to kick off. And this story came out around about February time. And it tickled my fancy because I have an interest in neuroscience and how the brain works. But also, I have a bit of an interest in music. And one thing that I was always intrigued by is how people managed to Um, improvise. So if they sit down at a piano, if they're an experienced musician, and they can just tinkle away, and they produce these beautiful sounds, which add ambiance to a setting. They don't dominate, but at the same time, they're interesting to listen to. But they also don't seem to follow the same musical patterns and rules that you associate with a classical piece of music. How is that person doing that? And how are they making it all make sense and sound good at the same time? And that's what was going through the minds of a couple of American neuroscientists, Alan Braun and Charles Lim. They published a paper in PLOS One earlier this year where they put a whole load of jazz pianists into a brain scanner to find out which bits of the brain they used to do improvisation. Now, the way they did it was to set up a protocol that would disentangle the bits of the brain that are active just by playing any kind of music from the bits of the brain that are involved in doing improvisation. So they first of all put them in the scanner, gave them a modified keyboard that they could play in the scanner and have the sound that they would be producing played back to them in headphones. They then asked them, first of all, to play some bits of music from memory in other words, well-learned pieces of music, and this would disclose the parts of the brain that are involved in remembering music and the parts of the brain involved in actually physically generating the movements to play music. The next thing they did was to say, right, now we want you to start improvising. They re-scanned them again and then subtracted 
the results of the first scan from the second scan, which should leave behind just those brain areas which are associated with the improvisation process. And two very interesting changes emerged. There was a very big reduction in the activity in a part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. This is the part of the brain right at the front, which is concerned with self-censorship. It's a on the outside edge at the front of your brain. So if you go into a job interview or you're being asked hard questions in a radio interview, for example, and you know people are f hanging on your every word, this is the bit of the brain you'd be activating. It's your watch what I'm saying next centre, if you like. And that was very strongly switched off in these people when they improvised. And at the same time, another bit of the brain called the medial prefrontal cortex, which is in the centre of the brain but at the front, that was very strongly activated. This part of the brain is activated if you tell people to tell a story and put themselves at the centre of it. So tell a story about yourself, where you're the focus of attention. That bit of the brain switches on. And not surprisingly, in these jazz pianists, when they're improvising, they turn off their self-censorship, they activate this region which is involved in spontaneous information about them, making themselves the focus, and that's probably how they channel this uninhibited flow of ideas and energy from the creative bits of their brain. And as uh, one of the uh, scientists said, they often play with their eyes closed in a distinctive personal style that transcends traditional rules, rules of melody and rhythm. And that looks exactly why. Helen? Do we think, this is fantastic, just to think, you know, what's going on inside these musicians' brains, but do we think that there are some people who are just naturally better at that kind of thing? Their brains are... are wired up the right way, if you like. And that's why they're better at um, improvising. Do you, do you think that could be the case? It certainly could. And, and in fact, one of the points they make in their paper is they'd like to now also look at other kinds of artists, writers, poets, painters even, and see when they show free expression whether there is the same pattern of activation because this would suggest that it's partly to do with disinhibiting yourself. It's partly getting yourself in the right mindset so the creative juices can start flowing. Cool. Now, a story from earlier this year, which hopefully will be the start of big things to come, was the news that the small California-based company called SpaceX has managed to build a space rocket and put a satellite into orbit. And this might not seem particularly impressive, as governments have been doing this for 50 years, but what's new is this has been done by a private company without state support. Now, it's quite a nice story that now SpaceX was started by Elon Musk, who's a South African entrepreneur who made hundreds of millions by pub from publishing software and then from PayPal, which you've probably heard of, which you pay things for e eBay. Now, PayPal was sold to eBay and he got loads of money and he wanted to do something interesting with it. Um, first, he thought, I know it would be cool, let's start a Mars program. But he actually looked into this and discovered the problem is that launching stuff into space is so expensive that even his millions, hundreds of millions, weren't enough to do anything interesting on Mars. So he decided that the solution to this, instead of just going into a corner and going, oh, I'll just play with my money and become a playboy, he decided to do something about this problem. So he started, he built his own space rocket business, um, basically building space rockets. He's got a production line in California making space rockets. Um, his first three launches didn't work very well. The first one exploded on takeoff. The second one, um, the fuel inside started sloshing about and it fell over. Hopefully with no one in, on board. Yeah, they're, they're all unmanned. Um, and so that one didn't. And the third one, it, it was really depressing, actually. It didn't quite work because he changed his space, the second, second stage space rocket engine. And it 
the, the idea is you push the first stage off and then the second stage ignites, but the, the, the first stage carried on going for longer than it should have done. So the, so the second, um, so the first stage and second stage couldn't separate and so it crashed into the ground. But fourth time lucky. In September, he got this space rocket up into space um, and this, this can lift about half a ton into low Earth orbit. Um, but he's, it's not where he's, he's not stopping there. Um, beginning of next year, he's trying to launch the Falcon 9, which should be able to put up to 12.5 tonnes into low Earth orbit. Wasn't there a prize associated with doing that? Um, I th- there's a prize associated with getting a person up to what's called space, which is 100 kilometres, um, but not into orbit. And there's another one with getting a person into orbit. But he's just got a, basically got a satellite up into orbit, which there aren't any prizes for. But in many ways, I think this is more important because actually getting stuff into orbit cheaply could mean that we can do all sorts of interesting things. We can go out to the, the Mars, the rest of the world, the rest of the solar system, put up bigger, cheaper um, telescopes and find out more about the universe. Yes, because Bert Rutan got the prize for first... Uh, it was suborbital, but the yeah. first zero-gravity type flight with Spaceship One, wasn't it? Spaceship yes. One, he did that a little while back. So the next big goal is to get someone up into orbit. Helen? I could tell by the grin on Dave's face that he just wishes he was the guy who was throwing things up into space. and maybe to build one, the rocket. Maybe one day he will be. I think that, that could well happen. Well, I shall finish off the news this week um, with what I think was the, the best news from this year. Um, and I don't suppose any of you will be surprised at all to hear that. It was the seahorses arriving in the River Thames in London. I think, just think this was wonderful. Um, that was reported earlier on this year, I think it was Easter this year, that the Zoological Society in London had actually, for the previous 18 months been looking at a population of short-snouted seahorses um, living in the River Thames. And this was the first time, really, we've seen a permanent population. A few have washed in occasionally. I think there was one seen in 2004. And then not since um, the 70s, I think. So really, these aren't creatures we expect to see in the Thames. Um, And they're now known to be living there, reproducing, living in a nice little population as far far, um, west, I think, as Dagenham. So sort of coming up into the the river. Um, Blimey, they've even gone to Dagenham. I know. No, I don't know why they no, chose to. And my family are from there, it's okay, I can say We're that. Only, of course. Well, they obviously think it's great. Um, it's still a bit salty there because seahorses don't live in fresh water, so there's enough of a tide still coming in there. So I think it's wonderful. And it was uh, the reason we were allowed to announce the story um, uh, and let everyone know they were there is because now seahorses are protected in the UK under the Wildlife and Countryside Act. So you can't go and collect them, you can't mess around with them, disturb them in any ways, just leave them be. And I hope just be really happy and proud that uh, the, the Thames is clean enough now for these lovely creatures to live in. Thank you, Helen. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. The Naked Scientist News Flash featured Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Helen Scales and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed this news flash, why not check out the Naked Scientists podcast, where we bring you the latest in science news, interviews with top scientists from around the world, your questions and a kitchen science experiment to try out at home each week. Look us up online at www.thenakedscientists.com or on iTunes. We'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs>